0: Someone handed me a picture, I guess they copied off the internet, Uh, it's a bronze, apparently of Prince Charles, with wings, and he's standing on a pedestal there that is full of bones. I see skulls and arm bones and leg bones, and apparently it's titled something like Savior of the World. His name adds up to 666 also. But we shall see, shan't we? Before getting into more of the meat of this today, uh, a couple of end notes on the jubilee. Someone brought up ni- uh, 1776 would have been a year of release we have the date correct, and that would have begun then at, that time, at the end of that year, the jubilee of receiving the land and having freedom and so doing with the war with England and then our release from King George. So it looks more and more like the plot is thickening, but that could be the correct date because God gave opportunity for Israel to actually possess and own the land at that point as opposed to living on it under King George. I might also bring up when Israel got done with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they went into the land crossing the Jordan River and God had given the instruction to them in Leviticus 25, which we read, but I want to go back to that for a moment and point a couple of things out. A question did come up about well, would the Jubilee year be from atonement to the next atonement, since a lot of farming practices to plant in the fall, in the winter for spring harvest and so on. Uh, a lot of that is done in modern farming. But is that necessarily the way it's going to be? Remember that the reaper will overtake the sower, and uh, there will be a constant coming in of crops and harvesting in the millennium, the time when God makes all weather different than it is today. Farming practices will also be different, and you do have the cycle generally in the summer of gardens and fruit trees and so on that come in in late summer or fall, and that's the way it was set up. Leviticus 25, it says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the eternal. Six years you shall sow sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard, and so on. Then he goes on to describe, as we read, seven times seven, and then you have a jubilee year. So, when they came into the land, they were to sow it and begin to eat of the crop. The first year they came in, they ate of the store of the land that the Canaanites had stored up and had to wait to plant. Well, when did they come in? Let's notice uh, Joshua 4 and 5. Uh, chapter 4, verse 19. I'm not going to go through this whole context, but just enough to point out uh, time of year and what they did. Chapter 4, verse 19. The people came up out of Jordan, across the river, on the tenth day of the first month. That was the day that the Lamb was selected for Passover. So it was the first month. That would have been Abib in the time that they came out of Egypt. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness. So they left in the spring, remember, when they came out of Egypt, Passover in the Days of Unleavened Bread. And they also stopped their 40 years of wandering at Passover time, crossed into the land in the first month of the year. Chapter 5, verse 9, The Eternal said to Joshua, With this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day meaning rolled away. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And then the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten the old corn and so on, and they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. But they also would have begun planting that year. I am quite sure that they came out uh, at the end of a jubilee year and began the cycle, because that's what it points out in Leviticus 25. When you come into the land, and they came in in the spring, then you are to start counting seven years toward a Sabbath, then seven times seven, 49, and then a jubilee. So he brought them in there precisely on time so that they could begin their career in their new land in the springtime, and the year is counted from spring to spring. If you counted a year beginning in at atonement, then you would suddenly be out of sync, because the year, as it goes by year after year, is from spring to spring, and you can't start it halfway through the year, everything is messed up then, so the year is spring to spring, and the, the jubilee is announced at atonement for the year to come. It's the end of the holy day season in the fall, and then when the planning begins in the spring, uh, that's the time that the, jubilee, that the jubilee begins. I wonder if I'll be that way all afternoon. Maybe I should quit now. No, let's not. There are some things we need to consider today. This is the last service of the last great day in the feast, and I wanted to say that I do certainly appreciate all the physical service that has gone in to making this a very enjoyable and pleasant time for us, from cleaning the hall to setting it up to cooking treats to making coffee to, uh, you know, whatever else has been done. There's so many, many things, the sound table, the special music and on and on it goes, that make it pleasant and agreeable and enjoyable and an opportunity to rejoice with each other. So there's been much physical service offered, and I'm sure we all appreciate that, all that everyone has done. Uh, I appreciate the generous offerings you've given to God because He says where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So if we are generous with God, then that shows Him where our hearts are And certainly we've had those generous offerings from you. I also appreciate the cheerful attitudes and the joy of rejoicing in God's Spirit. Uh, It's been a very wonderful and fine spirit we've had here. I haven't even hardly seen any bad attitudes. Only when I looked in the mirror. But I try not to do that very often. All right, let's consider some things today. There have been a lot of people die over the last 6,000 years. Gordon talked about some of that this morning with his experiences in the war. People coming on the ship with their arms blown off, their legs blown off, their heads blown off. Bullets in every part of the body you can mention. And that's only a part of the horror People have died all kinds of deaths in war, through terrible diseases all this time, through plagues. Uh, they say that more people died in ancient times of rotten teeth than anything else. No dentist, your teeth start rotting, poison goes into your bloodstream, into your heart, and you're gone. Most people have spent their old age with decayed teeth, or no teeth, and many have died from tooth decay. So you name it, there have been all kinds of ways that people have died through murder, through mayhem, uh, natural deaths even, which are not pleasant. And then people say, why does let God let all this happen? If there's a God, and He's a God of love, as they say, why does all this happen? How could it be? Well, let's go back to Genesis and grasp... I'm going to make you turn there, but I'm I'm, I'm back there mentally. God didn't wish man to die, did He? He told Adam and Eve, here's a chance to live in this beautiful garden. Everything will be fine. Just don't eat of that tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It will happen. You can do anything else, just don't eat of that tree. Man has insisted on dying. Adam and Eve went to that tree, they ate of it, and they died. And every human being since, save one who came from heaven, has sinned and come short of the glory of God and is going to die if he is not already dead. Billions and billions of people have lived on this earth, have had opportunity to start out life pure, fresh, and clean as babies and not sin. But we all insist on sinning and we all thereby insist on dying. You you wouldn't think it, would you? When you have opportunity to live, and yet our nature, Satan, the devil, circumstance, the culture around us, temptation leads us to sin, and we'll die for it. Hebrews nine seven says it is appointed to all men once to die, but after that. The judgment. So there is a judgment coming, and it's going to come to all those who have been appointed to die. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The penalty of sin is death. So it's not that God is so cruel, is it? Or is it more that we insist on dying? Hey, I want to die. I'll sin. Well, maybe we don't go at it with quite that attitude, but you'd think so by the looks of it. Just generation after generation after generation they sin. How long's the Bible been around? Thousands of years. And it's always said those same things. If you sin, you're going to die. Everybody said, yep, guess so, but I'm going to sin. I'll do things my way. I'll have fun. Nobody will tell me what to do, even God. And I guess I'll have to die. Samuel got all upset about it. and said, Father, I have a total failure. And God said, nah, Samuel, don't worry about it. They haven't sinned against you. They've sinned against me. They what they never have done what the prophets told them. Remember, they've always killed the prophets, stoned the prophets. Always have. There's never been a time when they didn't. What did the prophets come to tell them? Quit sinning so you don't have to die. So they kill the prophet, they keep sinning, and they die. Are we making sense here? Is this logical? No, but it's what's been going on. Is there ever any end to it? Does God have a way out of this? I want to go over to Romans 11. Romans 11. Well, actually, I want to start in 10. Did God set this in motion on purpose? Oh, He put that possibility there, and mankind, was tempted by Satan, by His own lust, and took Him up on it. We've been dying ever since. Chapter 10 of Romans. Brethren, my heart's desire, prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So here's Paul writing and saying, My prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. I remember my grandmother had a zeal for God. She didn't even know what God she worshipped, but she was the kind of person that was a decent, good person. And she prayed a lot. And she thought she was serving God in the Methodist church. But she was not serving God according to knowledge. She is not listed among the first fruits. She will not be in the 144,000. She is dead in her grave. She was just a sweet little old lady. I remember her and think of her very dearly and warmly. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And there you have it in a nutshell. People want to be righteous or think of themselves as righteous, but they're not willing to submit to the righteousness of God. So all they have is a self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is a sin because it is idolatry. It breaks the first commandment. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does those things shall live by them. You have to know the law, and you have to live by it. But the righteousness which is the faith speaks on this wise. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. Even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. You don't have to go a long way looking for Christ here and looking for Christ there. It's in these words right here in this book. The faith that he showed in living the way that he lived and never sinning. And yet he had to die anyway. The only man who never did sin had to die anyway because we sinned. He died for us. He didn't need to. He loved us and wanted to. He went through it on purpose. Not because He had to. Because we needed Him to. Verse 9, That if you shall confess with your mouth, Emmanuel and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. We believe inside that we want to be righteous. With our mouth we'll confess that we want salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoso believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Whoever believes, it doesn't make any difference what our race is, For the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? The world basically has not believed this book or God. And how shall they believe in Him of whom whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? There's a progression here. There's lack of knowledge. There needs to have knowledge. They need to get it. Therefore, someone has to be sent to preach it. And it can't be just anybody. It has to be those who are sent to do so. As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? It doesn't do any good to talk and to preach, he says. For the most part, people won't believe it. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Better listen when God's Word is read, and believe the report that is given. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, truly, their sound went unto all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What they said as prophets, what they said as apostles, was written down. It's gone to all the ends of the earth. as it? It's gone everywhere. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Even the Gentiles would listen when they didn't even seek God. But he said, I've pursued after Israel. I've chased Israel like a groom chasing a bride. Stretched forth my hand all day long. They wouldn't listen. He said he was like a mother hen. How often would he have saved Israel, but they wouldn't come to his clock. We insist on dying, don't we? No matter who comes, no matter what they say, we will think our way, we will do our way, we will go our way, we will not listen to those whom God sends, for the most part. Only a few will. We insist on dying. I say then, chapter 11, Has God cast away His people? He says, look at the record. You look at what has gone on in the past. And you have to ask the question, Has God cast off His people? He divorced them, didn't He? He Get away from me. He put her away. Because she wouldn't listen. God forbid... For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. He knew to Abraham they would become a great people, great nations. And this was written in Paul's day, and they've become greater in number and scattered over the world more even since. For I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew, Would you not, don't you understand what the scripture says of Elijah? How he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, dig down your altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Elijah had been chased out in the wilderness by Jezebel. She was looking for him to kill him. The only ones he had anything to do with were the crows that came to bring him food. Open wide, Elijah, and they'd drop it in his mouth, I guess. Wouldn't you begin to feel a little pitiful, poor, poor little me about that time? So he thought, God's cast away Israel, that's it, we're done. Must be way Lot and his daughters felt. Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out and for all they knew... Everyone on earth had been wiped out. It was such an incredible event. And they thought it was up to the three of them then to preserve mankind is why the daughters went in to their father. They thought it was the only way that mankind could be preserved. Pitiful situation. But I guess people today could look at the world and the mess that it's in and wonder, where's God? like Elijah did. But what, has, what says the answer of God to Elijah? Verse 4, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. There's 7,000 out there you don't even know about, Elijah. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So he's saying to the Romans, there's thousands even yet today who are faithful and true. And I think we would have to say today, based on the prophecies, that there is a faithful remnant still preserved this day to finish out the 144,000 and to be ready when the Christ returns. So they are a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. What he's saying there is salvation is by grace, unmerited pardon, and it isn't by works because you can work and work and work, but unless you have forgiveness and the grace of God to forgive the sins you've already committed, you won't be saved. Now, if you do work the right kind of works, that shows your faith and that gives God a kindly attitude toward you so so that He might extend grace to you. So it's not, as the Protestants try to put it, grace or works. It's grace extended because of our good works. What then? Israel has not obtained that which he seeks for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. God has called out an elect. He has called out some from the world. He's opened their eyes. Your eyes, my eyes, have been opened. We see. But the rest have been blinded. Well, is that fair? To blind them? So that they can't see the truth? So that they can't understand? And they are blind, aren't they? Have you ever tried to explain the truths of God to a human being who didn't have an open mind. It's just like they're deaf and blind. Can't see or hear anything spiritual. They think it's just like talking Greek to them. They have no idea. Can't comprehend it. Absolutely blind. According as it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this day. And I would say, not only that day, But even up to this day, he has blinded their eyes and closed their ears. This world simply cannot understand God. he did it. He is beginning to sound kind of mean, isn't he? David says, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. And a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see. And bow down their back always. Let them be rebellious, stiff-necked, and not be able to see always. Now, David's supposed to be king of all Israel in the world tomorrow. What kind of an attitude is this? Why would he have that attitude? I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid... But rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. God has used the stubborn, intransigent attitudes of the Israelites to save the Gentiles. Because they rebelled, would not follow God. He blinded the Israelites and began to open the eyes of the Gentiles. Now, Paul is speaking of this because it had happened right there in his lifetime. And he had been made the apostle to the Gentiles. So he was very, very sensitive and aware of this situation. Verse 12 Now, if the fall of them, speaking of Israel, be the riches of the world, the world has gotten rich spiritually in that sense because of Israel's blindness. And the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office, I'm letting you know what God has given me to do, he says. If by any means I may provoke to imitation them which are my flesh, it might save some of them. I'd like to save some of the Israelites, he says, but they've been concluded in unbelief. For if the casting away of Israel be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So they've been blinded, made deaf. What if they're regenerated? What if they come back and have life? For if the first fruit be holy, and the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and you being a wild olive tree... "...were grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches." He says, all right, you Gentiles now are beginning to have an attitude problem. You see that Israel was chosen. You see they rejected God. He's blinded them. Now he's opening your eyes to the truth, and suddenly you think, I'm just as good as you are. Matter of fact, maybe I'm better than you are. Funny how attitudes go all the way back. Verse 19, you will say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. I'm better than an Israelite. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest He also spare not you. When you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Nobody has it made, because if you sin. And you deny God in any way. He'll do you just the way He did the Israelites. Verse 22, "...behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off." So God can be very, very severe, and yet He can be very, very good. If we will not do things His way, He becomes very severe. Witness Noah's flood Pretty severe. Witness the end of this age. It's going to be pretty severe. If you think things have been bad before when you review all the wars and all the things that have happened and people being torn apart by beasts and by animals and and by bullets and by bombs and every other way you can possibly imagine, imagine Wait till this end, when millions and millions, billions of people will die, and God will say, come on, vultures, come on, wolves, come on, bears, eat to the full. Plenty for everyone. It's going to be pretty severe. Verse 23, and they also, Israel, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grapped. In, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. It is kind of a mysterious thing that all this death and destruction could lead, ultimately, to a better way. To salvation even. Don't be ignorant of the mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits, thinking, well, Israel's done. Now, we're in. It's not a matter of victory for one side or the other. He says, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So there's a time when they will not be blinded anymore. Their ears will not be stopped anymore. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. It's a beautiful statement. All Israel shall be saved. And yet millions and millions and millions of Israelites, hundreds of millions of them, have died. There must be a way, somehow, that those people who died deaf... And dumb and blind can be saved. For this is my covenant to them when I shall take away their sins. Well, a lot of them are already dead, but their sins are still going to be taken away. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. You hadn't repented when God called you, had you? When he called you and began to open your eyes, then you began to repent. So coming into the church, being called didn't come from you. It had to come from God. No man is called except the Spirit of the Father drawing. You were called before you repented. God began to work with you before bringing you to repentance. For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now turned, obtained mercy through their unbelief, speaking to the Gentiles here, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. This is, don't look down on the Israelites just because they've disobeyed God. They have a chance. Verse 32 explains it. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. Well, how do you blind them and make them deaf, and they don't even know, and they don't obey, and they die because of their sins? How are you going to show mercy there? Well, there's a way. And Paul doesn't go on to explain the rest of it here, but he does extol God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the eternal? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be recompensed to him again? No, God does it first. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So he said, you Gentiles have an opportunity, but he's not done with Israel yet. He's going to show mercy on Israel before this is over. Let's go from there to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. Uh, Let's start in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15. If in this life only... We have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. Of all the people that walk the face of the earth, if our hope is only in this life, we got the hardest chore, the biggest responsibility, and the worst throw of the dice, if you will, of anybody. Here we are, fighting our nature, trying to do good, trying to do what's right. And if there isn't another life after this one, It's all in vain. Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? For tomorrow we die. Do what you want. Do what feels good. Do anything you want to do because this is it. We do have hope for the future, don't we? I know the Sarah Nehemiah, was it 8? I believe it was 8 where Gordon was reading this morning and it said that... The joy of the future, I'm I'm badly misquoting this, won't quite come back, but the joy of what we have to look forward to is what gives us strength. See, for lack of vision, the people perish. But you can turn that around. Because of vision and the ability to see what is ahead, the people live. It is what is coming that gives us strength to carry on. It's what will give us strength to withstand the huge temptation that's coming on this earth. Verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, Adam and Eve chose death. They insisted upon it. By man came also the resurrection of the dead through Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So even though we've insisted on death throughout our history as mankind, God is going to turn our stupidity and belligerence and rebellion into life for us before it's all over. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own odor. No, order. Maybe the odor of the grave will be left behind. Can you imagine being resurrected in those clothes that you rotted in? Ooh, yuck. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the humbling process. Maybe the odor doesn't go away for a while. I don't know. I think you'd be so happy to be alive after having died some ignominious death. And all death is ignominious, isn't it? That you wouldn't care how you smelled for a little while. Every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's, it is coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. He's talking about another resurrection here. I want to go back to Revelation 20. Revelation 20 and... The story that Paul was talking about in Romans 11 and stopped short of finishing but gave God the glory uh, is laid out here. (coughs) Chapter 20 of Revelation. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So the thousand years will finish, and Satan will be loosed a little while. So what he's doing here is he's seeing the return of Christ, he's seeing the seven last plagues, the death and destruction and destruction that comes to finish off the history of man's six thousand years of rule on the earth in which man has insisted on going the opposite of God and insisted on death. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Emmanuel and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." So, those who were in the first resurrection, kings and priests, and reign with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So he says, These who were beheaded for God, these who went through everything they've gone through on this earth and are in the first resurrection, are going to live and reign a thousand years, and the rest of the dead won't live until that time is over. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So they will be given immortality. Death can never come upon them again. See, that's what gives us strength to do what God says in spite of the fact of what man's going to lay on us. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Isn't it amazing that Adam and Eve insisted on dying? Every man that's ever walked since has insisted upon dying and has done those things which would ensure and guarantee it. And at the end of the millennium, when a thousand years has expired and Satan is loosed for just a little while, he will gather people like the sand of the sea who will again insist upon dying. Can you believe it? And they went up on the breadth of the earth encompassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city. New Jerusalem will be on the earth. And the power of the Father and the Son there and the holy angels and all of those firstfruits. And they will have the gall and the presumption to attack the city of God. Just because Satan snapped his fingers and they come a it. How incredible is that? That's, that's beyond my imagination. Isn't, isn't it yours? Satan could just come back and say, you know, blow his shofar or his fingers or however he does it, whistle real loud. All these people from the four quarters of the earth will come running like this was the greatest thing ever and align with him and go against God after a thousand years of peace, prosperity, and beauty in the millennium. You think we don't have a formidable adversary in Satan? Why do you think it's so hard not to sin? It is difficult, isn't it, to go against this world and everything that it is doing, to do things God's way. Even we who have the Spirit of God and have convicted ourselves or committed ourselves to walk in the Spirit have trouble not walking in the flesh, putting worldly, physical things ahead of God. It's incredible. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet were and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Doesn't sound like he's going to be saved to me, as some claim, but be that as it may. And he saw a great white throne. So there's a rebellion at the end of the millennium. Then he sees a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whom whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, that would be Christ, and there was found no place for them. And I saw a resurrection. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened. That would be these books right here, the Bible. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead in it. Death and the grave delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. I believe they will be given a period of time. Maybe a hundred years, but I don't think that fits in Isaiah 65. A day is as a year. They will be probably given a thousand years. I think the last great day will probably be a thousand years, not a hundred years. The hundred years of Isaiah 65 is speaking of a millennial time. The new heavens and the new earth come, it says very clearly. And then these people will be living there and having children and planting crops during the new heavens and the new earth. See the series on how exclusive is the church for more detail on that. I don't have time to go there today. They're going to be given a period of time. There's no place in the Bible that says a day equals a hundred years. A equals a thousand years. Anyway, these people, small and great, doesn't matter who they were, whether they're in the sea, whether they're in the land, whether they're buried, they'll have a judgment time. They'll be judged by their works once their minds are opened. It has to be a period of time. How could a baby that was just born and died ten seconds later be judged by his works? Couldn't be. We are judged over a period of a lifetime. So they will have opportunity to live. And then comes the end of it. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I'm not quite sure how we extrapolated out of that that there had to be a third resurrection and all the evil ones who have had a chance in every age would die in that. I'm not sure. Part of it may be tied to Lazarus and the rich man in that story. Part of it was tied to Isaiah 65. And part of it was read into this in chapter 20 of Revelation. So I'm not completely convinced that every human being who has not made it will have to be resurrected and see what he's missing and then die as we have always taught. I don't know that that makes sense. If they didn't make it, let them lie. But there are very few, in my estimation at least, who will not have a chance. There may not even be any, for that matter, except maybe a few who understood and then rejected God. There may be a few in that category. But for the most part, most people, 99.999%, have ever lived since Adam and Eve are going to be resurrected in that resurrection at the end of the millennium, small and great, wherever they are buried, and come up to live again. This day pictures that resurrection in life. It doesn't picture all the death that has occurred, but I think it's okay for us to focus a little bit on what caused all that death. What caused all that destruction? That it was sin. And the mankind has insisted upon, has insisted upon it from the very beginning. But I can hardly wait till this time. But John saw in this vision, when the dead, small and great, from all over the earth, they're popping up everywhere. Where are all these people buried? They estimate 60 to 70 billion people have lived on the face of this earth. There are roughly six and a half billion now. There are 300 million in America as of 11 a.m. Tuesday morning coming up, or whatever hour of the day it was, that they estimate we'll have 300 million people in this country. That's a lot of folks. You know, you wouldn't know where to stand if you were on the earth at that time. They start popping out. You might have one under you. <laughs> Woo! When they came up out of there. Bump you over. Then another one may knock you the other way as they come up. Where did you put 60 billion? God remembers where they all are. And He'll be able to resurrect every last one of them. They'll stand on the earth to live and be judged. What an exciting time that will be. I was sitting back there during the sermon sermonette. Listening to it, of course, but I began jotting down some names that just came to mind of people that I would like to interview when they come up. And the list could go on and on and on, and if you think about it, you'll come up with a lot of different names, and I could come up with a whole lot more, but I just wrote a few down. What about Isaac? I'd love to talk to him. What were you thinking when your dad pulled that knife back and got ready to slice your throat? What was going through your head? Had you learned the lesson? You know, we talked about it the other, the other day at these tabernacles, about obeying God, about not talking back. How were you raised? No. What did your father and mother teach you so that you were able to lay there, probably tied to that altar, maybe it wasn't even tied? but by force of his own will, laid on that pile of wood and saw his father draw his hand back with that big, long, sharp knife in it. What were you thinking? Did you think, don't you do that? (laughs) Hey, wait! You know, it'd just be interesting to, to hear him tell the story, in other words. And he'll be there. Well, he'll be there before then. He won't come up in the last great... Day. He'll be, I, I didn't make that, I was just thinking But guys in the past I would like to talk to. We'll get to talk to him sooner, after the first resurrection. Maybe on the honeymoon, in the sea of glass will be time to, to talk to Isaac. Here's one that wasn't there. How about Simon Magus? He, he tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. And Peter said, translated into plain English, go to hell with your money. So Simon went out and started his own Catholic church and became the first pater, first apostle, or the first pope. It would be interesting to talk to him. What were you thinking, Simon, when you tried to buy God's Spirit from God's apostles? You didn't have your head on straight. Alexander the Great, the story is, he'd conquered the world. How old was he? Nearly 30 years of age sat down and cried because there were no worlds to conquer. It would be interesting to interview him and say, you know, what was going on in your head? You couldn't find anybody else to kill, so you just sat down and cried and died? He's kind of young. I, I don't know. It just He just popped into mind. Lady Godiva, what were you thinking? The rest of the world from then on would have a picture of you riding naked around on a horse in the night. What was going on in your head? That's strange. weird. Oh, I know another one I'd like to talk to. General George Custer. What were you thinking, man? You're going to get on that little knoll and all the Indians in the whole world are going to come down on you. I'd like to talk to him. What about the guys that divided Christ's clothes at the bottom of the stake? And one that picked up a sword and jammed it in him. I'd like to talk to him. What's your attitude now? You know what? What were you thinking then, and what are you thinking now? I think it'd just be an interesting interview. Balaam. Francis the talking horse, huh? What were you thinking while you were talking to that donkey? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of you to think of. Cora. I want to be boss. The earth starts opening. He starts falling. What were you thinking there? As you disappeared into the earth and then you saw the walls closing in on you. Oops. Falling through your mind. Oh. Wow. Or something like that. Ananias and Sapphira. You lied to the apostles. You lied and died. Why did you insist on dying? Why did you say we're going to save part of this back and then lie about it? It not make any sense. I'd like to talk to those people who are clawing at the ark as it floated away. Why didn't you listen to Noah? He told you. So I'm building this boat. I'm going to float away and you're going to float behind me. Belly up. Why didn't you listen to Noah? I thought he's crazy. I don't know what they say. They probably I thought he was crazy. That's probably how they'd respond. I'd still like to hear him say it. What about Amelia Earhart? She flew out over the Pacific Ocean, never heard from again. Nobody knows what happened. There's been all kinds of speculation. I'd like to talk to the girl. There she'll be. Here's your chance. She's probably shark poop. I may be scattered all over the floor of the earth, ocean. She's just kinda of, kinda of come back together. God'll fix the form back the way it used to be before out the shark and She'd be alive, well, and kicking. She'd be able to explain. Yeah, why? Well, I, I don't know what all the mystery is. I just flew out there and ran out of gas and... <laughs> 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 but they've tried to make all these big conspiracy stories about her death and speculated on it all. It's probably no big deal, really. But I imagine her heart was in her throat as it plunged toward the ocean. What about the guys that flew into the apartment the other day? All I was trying to do was turn this thing around, the East River, and it was going too fast. And all of a sudden, that building was coming up, and in the memory, that's about all I could say. Oh, here I am. And all their teammates can be gathered around, because they'll be resurrected too. Say, Boy, you shook us up, Corey. He'll say, yeah, you think it shook you up? <laughs> You ought to have seen how I felt when I saw that building coming at me at 112 miles an hour. Can you believe you see all these people again? I have aunts, uncles, cousins. I remember my great-grandmother, when I was just a little shaver, would sit around the wood stove. And she'd tell me stories about Pancho Villa and how he took their food. Stories about Apaches who came and raided them. About her ten children and how the tornado came through Arizona and turned their house upside down. And all of them were sitting on the ceiling. Upside down. Nobody got hurt. You know, she told me those stories. I was just a little guy. And I loved to sit and listen to her. Grandma Miller. Little old shrunken up thing. I'd love to see her come back robust and standing straight up and happy. And she had that little glint in her eye. I'd love to hear the rest of the stories. I'd like to go back and review them and see if I remember them all correctly. She went to Arizona in a covered wagon. Had a lot of stories to tell. Love to have been there. I'll have a chance to go there. Could see all that. A couple of interesting characters in Israel's life. David, Solomon. I'd like to just talk to David about all the things he went through in his life. I'd like to talk to Solomon and say, Why did you need that many? What were you thinking, man? That's just a short list. I've got cousins I grew up with. Played with early in my life. Some of them are now dead. Some of them I haven't seen in 35, 40 years. It'd be neat to see them pop out of the ground, and we could tell old stories about our childhood pranks and antics, antics, and our memories would probably be better then than they are now. I'd love to see my dad come out of the ground. Maybe I'll fly over there where he is. I know where he is at the moment. It would be nice to see him pop out of the ground. We laid him there a few years ago. I miss him. I'd like to see him again. Maybe some of these things will give me strength when things get tough. The joy of knowing that we'll see all these people again. You've lost parents. You've lost fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. Some of you women sitting here saw your own babies die the day they were born. Never got to know them. Some of you had brothers and sisters that died when they were two, three, four, five years old. You didn't get to grow up with them. God's going to make it all right. From Adam and Eve on, we have insisted on sinning and dying. But God has a plan. And He's going to bring all those people back to life. they to stand on this earth. Wherever they were, however they died, It doesn't matter whether they died violently. It doesn't matter if they died through terrible disease. It doesn't matter if they just fell over. Death is still an enemy. And it doesn't matter how they died to us. They're still dead. They're still gone. But we have an almighty God in heaven who created the heavens and the earth who can bring them back to life and they can breathe again. And their blindness and their deafness will be removed. And all Israel shall be saved. And the Gentiles, too, will have every opportunity to be saved. Because he which allowed little Johnny to die and allowed your relatives and mine to die has every ability and every desire to see them live again and has, in fact, promised that it will happen. Take strength in that. Take strength in that there is a resurrection. There is another life. Not only for us, but for our loved ones. Whoever they may have been. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children. Doesn't matter. They'll all stand. Small and great. Before God. And hopefully you and I will be there to teach them the truth. To help them see that there's a better way to live than the way they lived. That they don't have to insist on dying, but they can will to live and do those things that are required to live, and God will give them life. That's what this last great day is about. It's a plan of God that all Israel and the world will have every opportunity to live.